Hey, everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, the Other People podcast is offered freely. All episodes of this show, all of them, more than 600 and counting, are all available for free. It's all free. It's all offered to you for free. It's a listener-supported show. If you want to support the podcast, please do that. You can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Okay, thanks. Hey, everybody. How you doing? This is Brad Listy. This is The Other People Show. I hope you're doing well, and uh, I hope that wherever you are, it's hospitable. I hope you're in a hospitable environment as you listen to this. Twiggy. That's my dog, Twiggy. Um, what can I tell you? Amina Kane is back on the program. Very excited about uh, Amina's new novel. It is called Indelicacy, and it is available from FSG, Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. I talked to her a few years ago, and uh, we hit it off. She came back over and sat down with me. She is celebrating the publication of this new book. Uh, I read it. I enjoyed it. I enjoy talking to her. I'm excited to share that conversation with you. Get ready for it. It's coming up in just a moment. Hey, I don't normally, uh, well, I actually, I do sometimes talk about politics, but the Iowa caucuses happened, I think, this week. Yeah, I'm just going to say this. Let's all take a deep breath and let's all focus on trying to beat Donald Trump. And if you're out there and you're listening and you want Donald Trump to win, uh, I don't know what to tell you. This probably isn't the uh, monologue for you. I would also encourage you to like think long and hard about. No, I'm not going to. I'm not going to encourage anything. You got to make up your own mind. You got to figure shit out. I just got a text message as I was saying that <laughs> from my friend Duke Haney, and he just says a gruesome beginning to the election and a probable omen. Dear God, 
I'm not that dark. I refuse to be that dark at this stage. I think we all have to take a deep breath. That's what I think. And focus on winning. Who is a candidate that can win? Because what does it matter if the candidate agrees with you or reminds you of yourself and, uh, you know, embodies all of your ideals but is going to lose? You have to be somewhat strategic, do you not? I mean, I guess you vote in the primary for who you want, but I feel like with this field and this year, in this election, with these stakes, we have to think really deeply about who is going to be able to unify things and win. Don't we? I want to win. Anyway, uh, Amina Kane is my guest. And uh, her new novel, Indelicacy, is uh, it's a shorter novel. Uh, but just a beautifully and painstakingly realized work of fiction that has a weird effect um, in, in the best possible way. There's something magical in it and uh, mythical in it, and you're going to hear us talk about it in this conversation, among other things. I think we talk about yoga at some point, if I recall correctly. <laughs> so, you know, there's just multitudes awaiting you just seconds from now. In fact, it's going to happen right now. Let's do it. Let's just end this uh, waiting. I think we've waited enough this week. I think we've been through enough waiting this week. Actually, I do have uh, one more thing that I want to tell you. And uh, it has to do with uh, a great new service called BetterHelp. If you're out there and uh, you're struggling... If there's something inside of you that's telling you that there's something out there or in there that is interfering with your happiness, your ability to be happy, or is preventing you from achieving your goals or getting your book done or whatever, BetterHelp Online Counseling could be a great option. It's there for you. You can connect with a professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. It's convenient. And you can get help on your own time, at your own pace. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions. You can schedule chat, text. There's all sorts of different avenues for you to communicate with your therapist. These are licensed professional counselors. They have uh, specialization in depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping problems, trauma, anger, family conflicts, LGBTQ stuff, grief self-esteem, anything uh, that you share with these people is confidential. It's a great way to get help. And, uh, you know, if you're not happy with your counselor for any reason, you can request a new one at any time. There are 3,000 licensed U.S. therapists across all 50 states. This is available worldwide as well. And again, there are four communication modes, text, chat, phone, and video. You can get started in under 24 hours. It's available on your desktop, mobile web, Android, and iOS apps. So uh, it's called BetterHelp. Check it out. And best of all, it's affordable. It's convenient. And did I mention that it's professional? Also, 
when you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off your first month by using the discount code OTHERPPL. So why not do it? Get started. Take a chance on yourself. Go to BetterHelp.com slash OTHERPPL. That's BetterHelp.com slash OTHERPPL. Fill out a questionnaire. It's simple. It'll help them assess your needs and get you matched with a counselor you'll love. That's betterhelp.com slash other PPL, okay? Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond based on three decades of his writing career a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Okay, let's get to the interview. Here, ladies and gentlemen, at long last, is my conversation with... Amina Kane and her new novel available now from FSG is called Indelicacy. I mean, I think I'm someone who's very interested in something like negative capability, you know, where you're, you know, just that sense that you can hold um, either opposing things or things that don't make sense or, you know, without agitation, you know, that it's, um, and though I don't think I, I set out necessarily with the intention to write that kind of book, it makes sense to me that that's the kind of book I would write. Um, Why? I'm, um, for a couple of reasons. I mean, I'm someone who often has felt, uh, you know, like many, like super affected by books or movies or artwork or music sometimes and uh, I experience it and then I, you know, I walk out of the movie theater, or I put the book away and I don't even, you know, just that experience of, of not even knowing at first how to explain why I'm so affected by it, but like the feeling is so strong, you know, and... Um, well, that's how your book made me feel. That's good. Yeah, I mean, had I, like that odd sort of like, wow, like, you know, it kind of like disorients you in a good way and or... Um, like I'm trying to figure out what happened to me. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and I think for a long time, um, I have a lot of friends who who are really smart, and not that I'm not smart, but they're smart in different ways than I am. And so, often, like if I've experienced in the past, you know, like experienced something with them, like a film, you know, we might walk out and they'll have like all of these smart things to say about it right away, and I'm just sort of like so effective but like speechless like i can't i can you know like and so i think in the past i've felt there have been moments where i feel kind of dumb you know because i'm like oh I just, yeah i can't really say it. I'm, this was great you know i was so fit but like i have no words um but now i think 
I've come to like recognize that that is an important experience, you know, and that it's like, I'm interested in an aesthetic experience. Um, and you know, yeah, just this idea that we're deeply affected by things sometimes that we don't have words for and that that is a positive thing or that it's an interesting space to be in, you know, not that it's not, um, good to be able to talk about why something affected you too. And sometimes with time you can, um, so there's that, but I think I've just also, and maybe this is through, you know, somewhat the work of someone like David Lynch. I've often been interested in moments that, that kind of capture a certain feeling really intensely without necessarily doing anything with it. So one of the earliest examples of this that I can think of is, um, was when I was watching Twin Peaks and there's this scene, and now it's been so long since I've seen it that I might, my memory might be wrong or I might describe it, but not in the right way. But what I'm remembering is uh, like a, a living room scene in Laura Palmer's house where um, maybe Bob has just appeared or he's just going to appear, but there's just this scene of like a stain on a carpet and there's it, nothing is really happening, but and you don't know what this stain is. Like, I, I don't even know that it screams like this is blood or this, you know, it's just, but there, but there's, I mean, just this feeling of like terror, terror and creepiness is so strong um, with this sort of like minimal like image. And of course you have everything else that's been happening, you know, in Twin Peaks up until that point sort of affecting like how you might view this scene. But I just found it really interesting, you know, like what a scene like that can not represent, but like conjure for the viewer. It's like, I mean, to stay with the Lynchian model, it's like there's a dreamlike quality or a dreamlike logic, which is to say that it's not an ordinary logic. And again, it works on you in ways that are hard to language. Yeah. And then uh, there's also a line that comes to mind, which I think is from the David Foster Wallace essay on Lynch, where he's comparing Lynch to Tarantino. And he's like, Tarantino's interested in watching somebody get their ear cut off. And David Lynch is interested in the ear. Yeah. And like you talk about that blood stain, you know, you fixate on a certain detail and you really stay with it or you really look at it closely. And when you do that, there winds up being emotional content there that might not at first blush be noticeable. Yeah. So I think that's part of the affect too. Um, Yeah. I mean, I could go on and on about Lynch and like how he does what he does. I know like he meditates and... Mm -hmm you know, gets a lot of his ideas in that sort of like mind space or psychological space. And it's reflected up there. It's definitely uh, idiosyncratic and very much his. And yeah. I always appreciate that. And I think, you know, your book and the world that you've built is very much yours. Um, a connected question, just as I was reading and trying to make sense of how you built this thing was whether or not you had to come up with rules and the reason I ask that is because, you know, we are dealing in a nameless, dealing in a uh, book that, you know, is, is set in a nameless city with a protagonist who is mostly anonymous. Um, there's a lot of blank space. There's a lot of unknowns. And there is a certain logic to the story that is consistent throughout. And I'm wondering if you arrived at that logic intuitively after drafting it and redrafting it and redrafting it, or if you actually had to at some point arrive at a set of rules or like, this is the way I can talk about things in this book. 
I have to leave this out and I can put this in. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, I didn't, I didn't set up any rules. I mean, one of the things, um, well, I give myself a lot of freedom when I'm writing. And so, um, I mean, (laughs) I don't know. At times I wonder like too much freedom. So, so one of the other aspects, so it's like a nameless city, but then also it's not really set in a specific time. I mean, I, I've, I've said that it's set atmospherically in the late 1800s, but it's not a historical novel. It's not necessarily set. Well, and and then the dialogue too, there's an affect to the dialogue that I noticed, or maybe I miss, maybe I'm misapprehending it, but to me, it felt like. It felt like to me you were making a conscious decision to have your characters talk in a manner that is not hyper realistic. Mm-hmm. Like it wasn't slang. It wasn't like how you doing. Yeah, it's formalized. Mm-hmm. Um, and even the things they talk about, like there's just it's mannered. Yeah. And th- was that like can you talk about that? Was that intentional? Like you had a um, like an idea of how things should go? In yeah, that? I mean, when I you know in that first year when I was working on the book, it seemed to sort of be um, like fifty fifty, like sort of fifty fifty set in present day, fifty fifty set in um, you know maybe in the eighteen hundreds. Um, and the voice, I think, like the narrative voice and the dialogue was was probably more contemporary, but it wasn't until I sort of let the narrative voice and the, and the dialogue kind of go more in, into a p- kind of past that I was able to really get going with the book. And so I just went with that. I mean, writing to me often feels really hard. And so anything that lets me get going, I just, you know, I, I go with it. And, um, and I, you know, I, at a certain point I wondered, well, you know, when I was working on it, like, well, what will editors think of this? <laughs> like, it's not, you know, it's not set necessarily in the 1800s. It has details that are, that won't make sense for that time. Like, I think like a fan or like a strapless bathing suit or, you know, just, just various things, um, various details. I didn't know if that would be a problem for readers. I was very happy to find out that it didn't seem to be a problem and that it, it kind of works with you know, the whole world. But I think, you know, at a certain point, I just thought, well, it's fiction, right? So you can do anything you want in fiction. And, and you know, and so I, I think that, I mean, that's part of what makes fiction feel fun to me to work on it is that is is that you can, you know, you can give yourself that freedom. You Isn't it funny how that, like, you can lose sight of that, though? Like, yeah. as a fiction writer, all, you yeah. suddenly feel like you're like encumbered by all these rules. And it's like, no. Like, that's what this is. Make shit up. Mm-hmm. Like, go nuts with your imagination. And mm-hmm. yet, uh, somehow it can, like, you feel like uh, bound to reality, or at least I do sometimes, you right. know, wanting to render things properly and make sure that it's believable. Right. Or um, worry about what will make sense to people logically. Yeah. And it's like, the, the truth is that it only has to make sense on its own terms. Like, mm-hmm. there does have to be, and this is why I asked about rules, because it, you know, the book, it, it carries through, you know, you never feel jolted by it because it's always that way. And yet there's a lot of details. It would seem to me that you have to be watchful of along those lines all throughout the book in order to make sure that that's the case and that the book, um, that the story it like happens properly for people. 
Mm-hmm. Like, do you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think when I'm when writing feels like it's going well or that I'm in it, you know, because of course, like writing can be this frustrating process where you feel like, oh, I'm doing it, but I'm not quite in it or I'm not able to get there. But once I feel like it's like once I get in, then it's kind of all okay. You know, like it, I, I don't necessarily have to set up rules because I'm just, I've gone into that space. Like I finally, you know, and so it becomes its own kind of world, you know, that, um, I don't know. I, I often feel like not new agey, but just sort of like, I, I talk, I talk about writing a lot as something that happens to me instead of like something I do. And of course I know I'm doing it, but I, I do, you know, that thing. But that's the case though. Yeah. Like, I, I mean, this is going to sound really heady, but like the issue of free will mm-hmm. is fascinating and like really confusing to me, like whether or not we have free will, like you can do what you decide to do, but you can't decide to do what you decide to do. Like things happen, mm-hmm. like the contents of our minds, we're not choosing what flowers in our minds. Yeah. It's kind no, of just happening. Yeah. So it, it is happening to you. Yeah. You're just noticing it mm-hmm. <laughs> or mm-hmm. putting it on the page and channeling it. There is something weird and mysterious about it all. Yeah. I do feel like I'm channeling a lot of the time. And um, I want to talk about the precision of your work. Like in the press materials, there are, um, what is it? Clarice Lispector and um, Jean Reese mm-hmm. or Jean Reese. Yeah. What's, you know, and uh, I forget who else, but here's two uh, reference points that occurred to me as I was reading mm-hmm. Hemingway oddly mm-hmm. and uh, the movie get out. Oh wow. And well, I love that movie. I did too. I, Hemingway. I just feel like there's a precision. Uh, I guess I could also say Gertrude Stein. You use repetition really well. There's a clarity um, to your writing that I love. Um, there's not a lot of, there, there's um, there's guesswork in terms of like trying to kind of like find your way through this fictional world and figure out what's going on and all the rest, but um, it's just clear as a bell, and it also feels really deeply well considered. Like you really worked on this and like sat there. I can like picture you sitting there in silence <laughs> and like really inhabiting the world of this story and really looking and listening and watching carefully. Mm-hmm. And I find it interesting that in reading the blurbs, the word concentrate appears Mm -hmm. in more than one Mm -hmm. like you're really concentrating which is hard to do um yeah like surprisingly maybe but uh, am i getting anywhere close to how it went for you and and like is the hemingway and the get out thing does that resonate at all um i mean people have i there have been a few people in the past who've who've said hemingway you know who've read my my writing and and thought of hemingway so that yeah, that makes that makes sense to me, and I can understand why. I mean, I'm curious to hear more about Get Out. Okay, but. so Hemingway, I just I think the uh, the other part of it is not just like feeling like there's the same um, carefulness and directness and like clarity of language, but there's also an irony because this is a book that also feels very feminine mm-hmm. in its concerns yeah. and in it, yeah. and the protagonist is feminine. It's a very female book. Yeah, I um, wondered if men would like like it for I that. I totally reason. liked it. I totally did. I, yeah. I found it super fascinating um, and accessible. But you know, Hemingway is like the, um, you know, it's like the ultimate macho dude writer. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, you can poke holes in that, and there's all sorts of backstory there. But yeah. you know, on the page, it's like he's watching bullfights and like getting right. boxing and shit. But like his work. Just the prose itself is similar. And then yeah, um, yeah, I agree with Get that. Out, 
you know, I think um, I want to say it's been referred to as like a cultural horror movie. You know, it's sort of like bent the genre or created its own little like subgenre. It's a horror movie, but also a cultural commentary. Mm -hmm. And this is like a fable or an adult fairy tale that's also culturally critiquing Uh, mm -hmm. um, certain aspects related, I think, primarily to gender and, you know, the rules of society as they pertain to how women are expected to behave. And, you know, you you could probably speak to that with more authority than I. But, like, I just felt like there was a melding of... Uh, like fable and cultural commentary in mm-hmm. a really deft way. And so mm-hmm. that was where I think I was drawing the line between okay. the two. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I, I think that the whole like concentration and, and precision, I mean, I do, you know, like I said, I will write a sort of messy thing, but then, but then like so much of my work is the like, not just getting rid of things, but like just working on particular sentences, you know, and like getting them, to feel like I want them to feel. And I remember when I first started writing, there was this piece of advice about editing and revision that you shouldn't start editing or revising when you're writing the first draft, you know, that like you have to get the first draft down and then you can go back and sort of, and you know, that it'll just take you so much longer to write if you try to edit and revise as you go. But I just have never been able to follow that. You know? I have and, a hard time too. Yeah. Maybe it's to my detriment, but it's like, I have to sort of, I have to crystallize something sort of, I have to crystallize something, um, you know, whether it's the first page or I don't know, the first half or I, I have to, because then that's when I start having a feeling towards it. Like when I can produce this sort of like feeling for myself, um, I have to have some, some images sort of like rising up and like doing work as images in order for me to go on. And so that it's just never worked for me. And so I think there's that sense where I am always sort of like chiseling away, like always. And I, I don't really, I hate the beginning of a project. I really like revision and I like editing and I like, because that's when I get to sort of like hone in on something and, and shape it, and and, and then, I kind of f- just and figure it out, figure out what it is. Yeah, like is that because yeah. that's a, I guess that's a question. Like this book is um, so odd in its a- in its affect um, in a great way, you know, so specific and idiosyncratic and just like unexpected. And it sounds like you didn't preconceive it. Mm-hmm. Like you weren't even necessarily aiming for it. Like this is just, this is what happened to you. Mm-hmm. And in the process of chiseling away and cleaning <laughs> yeah. out all these words yeah. and going through all these drafts, suddenly the book kind of told you what it was yeah, or what it is. Though I did have a lot of problems with the last quarter of the book that it That's always the like, case. Yeah. It, the, the end is always hard. Yeah. You got to tie things together. Mm-hmm. Um, but yet, you know, there are certain things like as, as idiosyncratic as the story is um, and how it creates its own world. There still have to be, I think in any work of fiction, certain dynamics at play in order for, to keep people turning pages. Mm-hmm. Like there has to be conflict. There has to be tension. There has to be like a dramatic question that yeah. you're trying to like, what's going to happen to this woman? Mm-hmm. What's going to happen to her? Yeah. Like, where's she going to end up? Yeah. You know? And, uh, those things were there. Cause I was trying to like parse it. I was like, why am I, I'm just, I'm, I keep going. I'm confused, <laughs> but I keep, I don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> That's great. Um, so talk about the last quarter, like mm-hmm. getting to a place where you felt like it was finished and getting to a place where the story made sense uh, to you, you know, and was satisfying to you. Like what had to happen? How many drafts? 
number of drafts. I mean, and I think part of the problem or what became a problem for me was that I knew how I wanted the book to end. um, Oh, you did? From the very beginning. I mean, I knew what the last couple of pages were. I knew where, you know, the narrator ended up, but I didn't know exactly what got her there. Um, You know, the exact details that got her there. And so even... And I've never written a story in that way. I've never known how a story is going to end. And so it just became its own sort of challenge. And um, I, I had to write not the last couple of pages of the book, the very ending, but the quarter of the book that, that led up to it probably three times um, because I just couldn't get it right. And I kept, uh, you know, I wanted, you know, at a certain point, I killed off one of the characters, which I'm like, no one has... I don't think anyone's ever died in anything that I've written. And um, I, it just felt so like false and, you know, it wasn't meant to be that way. And um, is that a terrible feeling? I don't know. Like when you're working yeah. on something and you're like, you write the whole thing and you're like, Ugh, like it's yeah. just not right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's not, I think a part of me, because I, I feel like something like death is like, you know, it's, it's important. I mean, people die in movies and books and TV shows all the time. Um, but it's just, and it's something <laughs> happens to all of us. And it felt like maybe something that like as a writer and a person I should be able to tackle or I should be able to do, but either a, I wasn't ready for it or B it just wasn't what was supposed to happen in this book. I don't know, but it was not the right, right thing. And it just, yeah, it just felt it just felt really false. And so it's all in its intuition. Like when it finally clicks, like at the sentence level, at the story level, yeah. like at some point you go, okay, like, and that's it. Mm-hmm. It's not like you have somebody confirming it for you. Do you, like, when do you show the book to others? Do you have people who read for you? Um, two, two writer friends, um, read early drafts of, of the book. Um, and that, I mean, I, I, that probably, they probably read it maybe when I was like halfway through. And it was good just to sort of see what kinds of impressions it was making on them and where they thought it was going, you know. And um, they were the only two I really showed it to until I sent it to my agent. And then, you know, editors started looking at it. And um, it, yeah, it's it's just such a crazy feeling to work on something for so long with not many people actually reading it. And it just feels what crazy the, for them to read the responses? It What were the responses? Like the early reads from friends and then when you sent to your agent? Um, I mean, they, they seemed to be, they, they were interested in what it was doing and they also offered me, I think, some good feedback. In ter- I, now, it's been a while, so I can't remember exactly what the feedback was, but um, I think it was, it was enough for me to kind of see what they were seeing you know, because you just get so close to something, you just want to know how it's like registering for someone else. And I did have questions, like I said earlier, about how readers would receive time and like how time is worked with and time period. And so it was relieving to know that that was not an issue for them. Um, That's good work, though. I always find that like, like, especially when things are moving in time and um, like dramatic ways, and it feels seamless on the page. That's hard to do. Because mm-hmm. you like you know you, you you pull a reader right out of a book if they don't know what time something's happening in yeah um, but you can make you can make big jumps you can leap forward a, de- a decade mm-hmm. in a sentence yeah. if you do it right and whenever yeah. I see that done well I'm just like ooh yeah like, yeah there's in um, Margaret the first Danielle Dutton their their moments 
you know, when she does that in that book. I mean, I think there's like, yeah, like one sentence that pass that all of this time passes and it's just amazing to me. And the, the other thing I would say too, is like the, the way that you play with time in terms of uh, flashback, like the, the narrator writing from the present day, reflecting back. Sometimes, sometimes as the reader, you get pulled into the now, mm-hmm. you know, her now. Um, and I never felt lost there, but again, that, that's hard to do. <laughs> Like the, 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 there are pitfalls there. You could lose people. If suddenly yeah. they're like, well, wait a minute, what's she doing here? Yeah. Um, yeah. So you like just uh, to cover some of, um, you know, the business side of things, like you give the book to your agent, this book goes out into the world. I think because um, it's like this, you know, this little jewel of a book with its own like rules and personality and it doesn't um, conform in the way that, I don't know, like some popular fiction of my imagination would. Yeah. Um, Again, I I say that as a compliment, but I think about the marketplace and the way the marketplace receives idiosyncratic work a lot of the time. You just talk about like the sales process, like your agent took it out, Mm -hmm. editors read it, did it sell quickly, did it take a while? Um, I think it took, if I'm remembering correctly, um, maybe like four four months or so. Um, I mean, it's, it's funny. I mean, you know, I, I gave it to my agent and she had it for a while and, um, I got, I mean, just in a way that I never have before, just super anxious about it. And, um, you know, because it took a little bit of time, I remember like thinking like, God, she's going to like hate it. She's going to drop me as a client, you know, like, of course, none of those things happen, but like, I think I cried one day because it was just like, I became at a certain point, like preemptively bitter, like no one's going to publish that. You know, like I had this like whole thing happening, you know, in my mind. That's the, it's the about, worst. It's the worst part of the whole process. I think of publishing is that when you hand it off and you wait for word. Yeah. You're completely powerless <laughs> and just at the mercy of this process and it's all, and you're in the dark. You don't know what's happening yeah. until you do, I guess. Mm-hmm. And yeah. yeah, it's like, that's no, that's no fun. And they always say, well, just work on the next thing. And you're like, okay. It's a hard time to work on the next thing yeah, because, yeah. yeah, because you're so anxious, you know, or maybe not everyone is, but if you are anxious. It's like, I, I always like the analogy. I always like sort of jokingly use is like, you're like someone you love is like having surgery and you're like pacing yeah. in the waiting room. And someone's like sticks their head out of the operating room door and is like, "Hey, would you write a novel while you're while you're pacing?" <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a good comparison. <laughs> like, why don't you just relax and write a novel? Right. Um, but then you get the you get the yes, and it's from FSG. That had to have been a thrill. Yeah, yeah, it was great. Yeah, it was very. And there were there were a couple of um, editors who were interested, but they you know also who were interested, but they said. Uh, we're interested, but we want you to work. We want you to expand it because even though it's short, it was like even shorter. Um, I'm a little ashamed to say. How, how, um, how many words is it? May I ask? Is like thirty five thousand? Maybe. I have. I think because I write short books, you know. And so, like, you know, when I was writing, you know, writers would ask me that a lot. Like, how many words is it? And I would just, I would never want to answer because the answer, you know, like the number of words is so much less than what you know most people are working with and i think i would answer for a while and then i would just say like i don't know or i would say i'm not answering that question i think it's arbitrary and now i can't quite remember i mean it's 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 a short book i mean i never think in terms of words i just think in terms of pages you know so it might be that i honestly can't even remember now but it's yeah it's not a lot of words and um 
And so, but, you know, FSG, they also wanted me to expand it, but they, they were willing to commit to it, you know, and, and it, it felt, you know, FSG is, you know, like I said, it is, does feel like kind of a dream publisher. And my editor, Jeremy Davies is this, you know, um, amazing editor and writer himself. And he was at Dalkey Archive, you know, for many years before FSG. And, you know, so like, I, I felt very much like a kindred spirit in him, you know, just in terms of that's like, what it takes. That's what it takes. Yeah. You know, yeah, so it felt very right. Um, and just to, not to hammer word count too much, but like, I'm sort of a word count obsessive person because yeah. I like short. And so I, but I feel you, it's like, you know, it's like, well, 80,000 words is a novel. You yeah. like, you read these things, these like kind of arbitrary markers and anything less than 40,000 is a novella. And it's like, well, no, you know, like there's all kind like, I want to say animal farm is 32,000 words. Yeah. The great Gatsby is 42,000 words. Mm-hmm. Slaughterhouse five is 47,000 words. So like, fuck off. Like we can write yeah. short novels. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And I love <laughs> short novels. I mean, I love long novels too. I love all kinds of novels. Um, but yeah, it's funny because like once in a while I'll see this Twitter thread or, you know, someone will write an article or a list about like the short novel, like the love of the short novel. And it's always so interesting to me because it, it just seems like it's been such a struggle for, you know, larger publishers to want to publish in them. I mean, they will, and lots of them have been published, but I feel like it's an easier road to get there if you're already famous, you know, like if you're already famous, then sure, they'll publish your short novel, maybe. I mean, there's, easily, and the, but there's always but, like, the, there's like the sweet spot, you know, I guess it is in like the 60 to 80,000 word range where they can like justify a certain price point based on page count or something. Yeah. But you know, if you go too short, maybe there's a risk, but if you go too long, there's a risk. Yeah. I just, I think the whole, there shouldn't be too many rules and each has its merits. Each comes with its own set of challenges. Mm -hmm. Like it's hard to write short. Yeah. And And it's hard to write long and it's hard to write long and not have it feel like, you know, uh, like you're losing people or it's too long. You know, there's Mm -hmm. a million challenges that go along with that. If you can execute a thousand page novel that keeps me going to the end, you've done something amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Amazing. I've read long novels where I'm just so in awe, you know, of what the writer has done. And I've read some other long novels where I'm like, oh, like this is padded, like probably because the publisher wanted it to be longer, you know, like actually this is some of this is too much, you know, like it's not. Well, maybe the issue is wasted motion. Like I don't want Mm -hmm. wasted motion in a long novel or a short novel. Mm -hmm. And if it feels like there's wasted motion, I notice it. Yeah. You know, and if, and if there's not, I deeply appreciate it and like Mm -hmm. sort of revere it. Um, but maybe it also has something to say about my attention span. I worry about that a little bit too. Like my life is so hectic and busy. I love the feeling of, I love the feeling of finishing something mm-hmm. like getting through, like I've interviewed some poets recently and I sit down to read a poetry collection and like an, I got 40 minutes Yeah, and I'm like, Ooh, I read a book today <laughs> you know? like, yeah. and it was like, and I entertained some deep thoughts and like nourished my soul. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like a nice feeling to, you know, to get through something. There's also a nice feeling of like, you know, having a book that stays with you for three months and you carry it around right. and you know, you can't wait to get back to it and everything else. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, life can work on you in ways that pull your attention like this way and that, and it can be hard sometimes to sustain. I know. Uh, so anyway, um, another thing that occurred to me, which sort of feels strange is that I kept thinking to myself, this could be adapted for the screen. Mm. And 
at first blush, a book like this, you would think, well, this isn't a, usually it's like a true crime book or, you know, some novel that has like this really, I don't know, familiar plot structure or something. But I could see this going to the screen. Did you ever have that thought? Um, I mean, I think that because I'm so drawn to images, the visual and imagery, and, and um, it's probably like a very visual book. I mean, I'm not, and that's not necessarily maybe why you thought that it could go to the screen, but I do feel like um, I have, you know, like I'm thinking about like film or art, you know, and those and in that way, like it's it's this very visual book. Um, yeah, I someone else said that, and you know, so it it it's something that I've I've definitely, you know, thought of. Like, could this be, you know, could this be adapted? Or um, I think the thing that kind of, where I got stuck was like, how would someone deal with the aspect of time? You know. Well, there's a dreamlike like, quality to it. It would be like a fairy tale, like fable, like dreamy yeah. sort of movie. The thing that I liked about it in that, in that respect is the fact that it's, it's not like a cul-de-sac. Um, it's wide open. Like you leave space for mm-hmm. interpretation. So I can imagine if there's any filmmakers out there who are <laughs> looking for material, um, but you don't want something that's like super well-defined. And yeah. just as an example, um, the Goldfinch. Mm-hmm. Okay. I read that entire novel. Any book that I finish is good. Yeah. That's my litmus test for what if I can get, th- if I get yeah. through it and I can't put it down and I finish it, it's good. I enjoyed it. I like Donna Tartt, but that is a book that is like maximally realized mm-hmm. like details and like, you know what I'm saying? Like the characters and like, like it's just filled full of all of, all of the material that, um, I guess a filmmaker might, uh, otherwise have to come up with on their own. But I think from an adaptation standpoint, um, at least for me, I like the idea of working from something where some of the interpretive work is left to me, yet the the basic architecture, like the frame is there. Right. That's what I feel like your book does. It mm-hmm. affords somebody the opportunity to be individually creative in truly adapting it, but all the the heavy lifting is done. Yeah. Like the the major heavy lifting. Um, but the detail work and interpretive things and leaps in time and certain, you know, flourishes, I don't know. I think somebody could work with it and do something really interesting with it if it's the right person. Yeah. Yeah. I think I would be both very excited by that prospect and scared. You know? <laughs> like, I want nothing <laughs> to do I, with yeah, it. Yeah. <laughs> I've never, well, just that I've never had that experience of, you know, the, like you create something and then maybe someone else takes it and, you know. I think you would have something unless you were hired to write the screenplay. Would you have interest in that if that came to pass? Or would I don't you- know, you know, cause I've never written a screenplay. I don't know how I would do at it. You know, like it, it's just this whole other world. I think if you but- didn't write it, you would have to, and, and you agreed to like, say, Hey, go adapt it. I trust you to just make this your own thing. You would have to find a way to just like step back and just let it happen. Yeah. That's probably what you have to and do. And then just like go to the premiere situation. and just like have a nervous breakdown while they yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they ruin your novel on screen. Um, but yeah, it was like it was an unexpected feeling. I was like, oh wow, huh, like, this would be a great nice a great uh, you know movie. Somehow it could do interesting things. And I think maybe that's where I was thinking of Get Out, and I was thinking of Solange. I am going to mm-hmm. out one character name mm-hmm. simply because I have to ask you. 
I mean, it's it's such a it's a funny part of the book. I was like Solange. She named the, the you know this character Solange. It's uh, for people listening who haven't read Solange is the housekeeper mm-hmm. uh, in this woman's house in this woman's uh, home. And I'm fascinated with Solange in real life. Solange Knowles. Solange Knowles. Uh-huh. And I even took the very risky step of one time tweeting that I found her more compelling than Beyonce. Yeah. She is. Like, I, I'm just like, I think the work that she does is really interesting. I think the fact that, like, of being Beyonce's younger sister interests me. Like, how'd you like to have Beyonce be your older sister? Oh, my God, I know. Like, this, like, <laughs> ultra dynamic, like, electrifying entertainer who's, like, more famous than Jesus. And it's just like, then there's you, and you're trying to make your art and have your own identity in the shadow of all that. And yet, I think that she's really talented, and there's a depth and an idiosyncrasy. Is that the right? Did I say that right? Yeah. And an idiosyncratic yeah. nature to her work um, that I respond to maybe a little bit more. It's not as poppy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the I should just say the four characters were named after um, characters in other books. So um, Solange wasn't named after Solange uh. Knowles, but <laughs> I, I definitely have been aware that they share they share the name. Well, what's the book? I'm so I feel like I have like literary blind spots. Like where's the Solange? Where are you oh, referencing? Yeah, it? I don't even know if it's. Yeah, I don't even know if it's explicitly set like in the jacket copy of the book or anything like that. But um, so Victoria is a, named after a character from. Clarice Lispector's The Apple in the Dark. So you just named, you just named your protagonist. I got to point it out. Yeah. I was, I was going to keep it a secret, but spoiler. <laughs> Sorry. Solange is named after um, uh, one of the two sisters' maids in Jean Genet's The Maids, oh. Jean Rees, um, Antoinette, White Sargasso Sea, and then Dana is named after um, the character in Kindred, Olivia, uh, I mean, Octavia, um, Butler. Octavia Butler's Kindred. And um, so th- that's where the names come from. But I've been very aware that, you know, like you had to have, you Solange, had to have been thinking yeah. when you name something like at least there's like a double meaning somehow because of yeah. the culture we live in now. Yeah. And I like her, too. I mean, I haven't listened to her music a lot, a lot, but I um, I feel very interested in her and in her work. And, you know, I don't want to make anyone mad by saying this, but to me, she feels um not that I don't think Beyonce is an artist, but she feels, but Solange feels closer to, to the artist to me, or you know, to, to being, you know, they're both artists, you know, in different ways. But um, there's just something sort of uh, like quieter and more mysterious to me about Solange's music. And I think I just respond to the underdog. I think I, yeah. I think that just that narrative, like Beyonce's kid sister. Right. Just like living in that shadow, but like doing interesting work. And just the fact that she's able to do work at all, like takes a, a, an amount of courage that I um, like admire. You know, it could be, it could be easy to just sort of be like, oh, I'm not even going to try. <laughs> you know, yeah. my sister's like, I know, I know. And, if, and of course it's like, it would have to be very different. The, the kind of music. I mean, I don't think that that has shaped why she does, you know, the kind of music she does, but necessarily but you know it's it's just on this other register that for me is is more compelling i mean there are lots of beyonce songs that i like you know but it's just i yeah i don't know There's, so wait and what is the character solange is from jean genet's the maids mm-hmm. i wonder like the play. Th- is it like the real solange named after it's like was her name inspired by jean genet 
One Probably wonders. not. You know, I don't know though. That would be interesting because <laughs> I'd never heard the name Solange. Like I haven't read yeah. the maids, but I've never heard the name Solange before Solange Nels. And I yeah. was just like, all right, where well, I don't know where that. It's came. a really nice name. It is. I like and Beyonce. I mean, yeah. like these names are uh, like aesthetically pleasing, and and like yet at the same time, like singular, it feels like mm-hmm. uh, like they now own those names. Yeah, yeah. Their parents did a great job in naming uh, them, and my parents named me Brad. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not bitter. I'm not bitter. <laughs> I own the name Brad, by the yes, way. Right. Um, so the last time we talked, was it Creature? Yes. Okay, so Creature. And, and uh, I get so lost in time. This was a few years ago. Yeah, I guess. It, it, I don't remember. 14 or 15, tw- maybe. I, yeah, maybe it was 2014. Because I, I think Creature had already been out, but maybe it wasn't like... My guess is 2014, but I can't remember exactly. And so... Like in the intervening time, you know, we're, there's like a five-year window now. Um, was most all of it spent on this book? Like, how long did it take you to write? Yeah, I mean, I, I started this book in the spring of 2014, and uh, so I might have just been starting it when I talked to you, or just kind of in those beginning stages. But you know, and as I said, that first year was just sort of like a year of pre-writing, um, and then yeah, working on it, writing multiple drafts. Um, sending it out and then expanding it. And then, you know, once I was working with Jeremy, my editor revision, um, I've, I also have another book that I've been trying to work on that I'm what pretty close to being done with. What is it? Um, it's a book of essays on the space of reading and writing fiction. Um, each essay has a theme. Um, so for instance, one example is, uh, Darkness, um, and it's it's basically an essay on different representations of darkness in fiction, but also in art and and film. Um, and you know, so there there's an essay on scenes of like relaxation in fiction or friendship, or you know. So it's mostly fiction, but sometimes I talk about film or art too. Um, and yeah. you're almost done. Yeah, I'm. I mean, I'm done. I finished. I have a draft. Um, my goal was really to be done with it by now, you know, by the end of the year. Um, but I definitely have this feeling that I need to, that it might not be ready. You know, just that question of like, is this actually ready for, you know, anyone to see it or do I need to? So I think what I need to do with it is set it aside for a couple of months and I can go back to it. I mean, when, when I think about people who are successful as fiction writers or writers, you know, especially long, longer form, you know, you're writing books of fiction or nonfiction, having like a really well-developed sense of when something is ready is consistently, it seems like it's consistently there among people who are good at this. Um, I think there are books published that are published before they're done. Yeah. Um, and then I think sometimes books can be overwrought too. So it's like, mm-hmm. it can work in both directions. Mm-hmm. Like you didn't do enough or you did too much. So it's like honing that sense of like, okay, like it's right. Yeah. Uh, and that can be hard to do. Like I have like a lot of indecision around that in my own work. Like when's it done? Like, I guess you just, you just have a feeling. It's yeah. hard. Yeah. I mean, and I think there's a part of me that want that, that does want to be done sometimes before I'm actually done because I just want to be done or like, I want to give it to be, you know, or I, um, and I have to kind of try to resist that. I mean, I think that's part of what happened when, you know, I, I gave it to my agent and then she submitted it to publishers. I think, I think part of me knew that it wasn't 
totally done, you know, that I hadn't quite gotten it right yet, but somehow it, I mean, it all worked out in the end and, you that, know, that's almost always the case. Like, I think there's like yeah. a, anecdotally, there's like one, I want to say, like I read that like Don DeLillo's Mao two, I forget who his editor is. It's like Michael Peach or one of these big time editors, um, was being interviewed and was like the only book that's ever come in that I didn't touch was that it was like done. He was like, okay. Yeah. And they just sent it to the press, you mm-hmm. know, but like every other book, even bo- you know, books get acquired. There's always an editorial process that's natural right. and normal. So no book is done upon submission right? and probably no book is done upon publication. At some point you just, you stop. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's just interesting when it comes to like getting something over the line and, getting a publisher to say, yes, you do have to get it close enough right. <laughs> that they yeah. feel like they can, they can, you know, help to enhance it and get it as, you know, to its finished form. Yeah. I mean, I think that, I think in a way I needed that, like I needed the feedback that I got from Jeremy. Um, it was really helpful. Like I needed to maybe be in that space of, of like, okay, this is going to be a, you know, a book, but still there's this and it, you know, maybe I could have given it to friends and they would have also been able to to provide something similar, just this this other set of eyes, obviously. But um, he, you know, one of the things that um, before FSG, before they accepted it, they said, you know, we're interested in this. We think you, you know, they too thought I needed to expand it, but they wanted to know what my vision for expanding it was which at first I was sort of nervous about because I don't normally work in that way, like where I know ahead of time. But, you know, I came up with They're what like, I... would you consider adding a character named Beyonce <laughs> to this book? Yeah. And I said no. no. <laughs> Put your um, foot down. You have the yeah. line. Yeah. But, and that was, it was actually helpful for me to do that, to sort of come up with, yeah, how will I expand this book? It kind of kicked me into a certain gear that... Well, and I would say, like, I would say in the same breath, like, once, like, there is a formal acquisition made, um, that has a way of concentrating one's attention, too. Totally. Because suddenly yeah. it's like, oh, shit, like, this is going to be seen by the public. Yeah. Like, this is that my little baby is going to go out into the world. Like, mm-hmm. you, you're like, suddenly, like, I better fix this up and make sure it's wearing a nice outfit. And, right. you know, like, all of a sudden, shit gets real. Yeah. And that can be, I think, healthy. Like, it's like a, like a necessary like uh, emotional step and uh, like just a, as a way of like making you concentrate um, in a big push before you're done, done. Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah I, um, I want to ask you about themes, mm-hmm. like the way that you work, it would, it would seem to me and correct me if I'm wrong, that um, the theme comes last. Like you realize what you're writing about last. Cause you're doing all this like, sort of like looser, looser writing where you're permitting yourself to take chances and be messy. And then you're pairing away and pairing away and redrafting and redrafting. And then at some point it sort of occurs to you and you can see clearly like, Oh, well, these are my concerns here. Mm -hmm. Um, can you talk about like a, if that's true, uh, and then B like what the process of discovery was like, and like, can you articulate, like what are the big themes that you seem to be wrestling with here? Mm hmm. Yeah, it's exactly the way it happened. Um, you know, I've said before that one of the things I like about writing is that I get to see what's inside my mind or I get to see the things I'm most interested in. And in a way, that sounds funny because, like, shouldn't you know the things you're most interested in? But, um, and I do, it's not that I don't, but it's almost like it gets reaffirmed. Like, these are the, you know, like as I'm writing, okay, these are the concerns that rise to the surface again and again, you know, and maybe I'm interested in these other things, but they don't 
kind of rise to the surface of the book or the story that I'm working on. And so, uh, so I find it like a really enjoyable process and to sort of just this confirmation of like what's in my subconscious and, um, and, you know, it, it makes sense to me, you know, that I would, I would write a novel that, that is thinking about, um, like, like women's place in the world and society, um, the what, life of what it means to be a woman who wants to write yeah, and yeah. make, and make art in the world yeah, and speak out, mm-hmm. you know, I think there it's gotten better, but I mean, I think generally that has not always been smiled upon, you know, by yeah. the wider culture, you know, or the patriarchy or whatever. So, um, and I think it's also to be, I mean, it felt to me, it's like, it's like to be a person, but in particular, a woman who wants to live unconventionally Mm -hmm. in the world, both as a creative person, but in relation to other people even. Yeah. Um, and I respond to that. I think a lot of people, maybe a lot of writers in particular, but a lot of people like quietly feel like freaks. You know what I'm saying? Like, like, do I fit in here? Like I'm confused, you know, and Mm -hmm. maybe it doesn't get said as much, but, um, it's a relief when someone does it, you know, as elegantly as you've done it. So, but you, you obviously grapple with that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, um, freedom is, you know, just the idea of freedom is something that's very important to me. Not that I have like it figured out what freedom is. I mean, I feel like that's something I'm always kind of trying to figure out or work through, but, um, freedom, I feel like was a theme in the book, you know, for, yeah, for Victoria to be like the person she's going to be, to be able to be the writer she's going to be. I mean, I think there are kind of themes of, you know, class that come up. Um, sometimes I hear people say that, you know, if you, if you grow up without money, for instance, maybe you're not going to think about becoming an artist or a writer because you can't, you know, by necessity, you, you need to make money or you need to be able to survive. And, and I, and I agree with that. And I think if you're living in like true poverty, you know, that's, that's probably very true. But for instance, I'm someone who grew up with not a lot of money, but I always, kn- well, I shouldn't say I always knew, cause I didn't always know what I wanted to do with my life, but I knew that making money ne- wasn't necessarily going to be part of it, that I had to sort of be true to what I, how I wanted to live and what I wanted to do with my life. And so, um, so I think too, there's something for me there, you know, that, um, you might, you know, because Victoria doesn't have money, she doesn't grow up with money. And of course, like she kind of finds this way to have it for a while, which gives her time to write. But, um, which by the way, is like a great magical leap in plot. mm -hmm. Like I loved that about it. Cause it's like, it's unexpected it's not common. I mean, I guess it happens in the world, but it's like typically not something like a, a, a maid at a museum doesn't typically suddenly marry like a fabulously wealthy man. And yet that's what happens yeah. in your book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm just, I'm all in on it. I didn't doubt it. I kept going, you know, and that's a testament to um, your skill, you know, in, in rendering it that like you made all of it believable. Um, but it was nice because you get to draw that stark contrast you get to see the character in those two modes and in those two worlds. Um, and, you know, without giving too much away, I think there's something really deft about the ways in which you um, portray how sort of like easily and seamlessly one moves into privilege and like the amnesia that uh, privilege can create in people. Mm-hmm. I have that feeling all the time. 
Um, and it's actually a way for me to, um, deliver like absolution to people who might have blind spots, um, or like a lack of empathy that I find kind of appalling or upsetting or whatever. Yeah. And I'm like, man, but it can happen. You think it can't happen. Like really good people suddenly, you know, if they're, they're too wealthy and they're living in this life of like five star vacations and you know, everything's kind of taken care of and yeah. You know, you can lose sight of what it means to be somebody who's really struggling. Yeah. Um, and there can be like a, a big disconnect. And um, it's something you have to guard against. It can happen to even good people is what I'm trying to yeah. say. You yeah. know, it has like that effect. Like privilege has an amnesiac effect. Yeah. And it's funny because I, you know, I I grew up kind of working class and I don't, I'm probably not working class anymore. You know, like that's, but I, my identity always feels really kind of tied into that. Um, and, but I've always sort of like loved things, you know, like I also like admittedly like have this like love for clothes or, you know, not that I'm constantly buying them or like, I like beautiful object, you know, like it's, it's not like that's not true for me and never by has the way been. for those of you listening amina is in a formal dress uh here in the garage <laughs> i wore a gown yeah it's uh <laughs> what, who is it um I, i'm trying to think of a designer and i'm totally blanking but anyway you get the joke <laughs> yeah um yeah i know like i grew up i was thinking about this yesterday or recently i was having a conversation with somebody and it was like off the cuff and she was just like yeah you know you're privileged you're a privileged guy um but you you know, you, I don't know what she was, she's trying to basically, you're a good guy. You care about people, but you're privileged. I don't know. It's like, she said it quickly and meant it like totally casually, but yet I like stung me a little bit. And yeah, I was like, were like, I was like, really? Cause like I, am, and she's right. I am Yeah. like ultra. Yeah. Like I feel like very, very fortunate and I get it, but like I wasn't raised that way. Yeah. Like I was never uncomfortable, but like our house was like aluminum siding in mm-hmm. suburban Milwaukee. And like, you know, I don't know, like, 1800 square feet mm-hmm. you know like it, we didn't like it was just like a very like mi- very middle class or working class kind of neighborhood in suburban milwaukee which is no like yeah. hotbed you know like yeah. a, um but yet things have changed over the years and i sort of run the gamut and my grandparents were like on social security and lived in like the bayou yeah so i don't know i guess i i didn't i guess maybe those identity um those feelings of identity that you forge as a, as a young person sort of stick with you? Yeah. And I had a very, you know, because in my own family growing up, not my like nuclear family, but like aunts and uncles and grandparents. And, um, it seemed to be this real mix. Like some people had a lot of money. They were like very wealthy and other people were like poor, even in a family. Yeah. And, and I actually felt like, um, there was like elitism and snobbery within my own family so that I sort of grew up, being suspicious of people with money and the, the like class played out like very weirdly. I felt in my, like in Canton, Ohio, where I grew up, you know, like the wealthy kids and the not, you know, like, and so I think I had not like a chip on my shoulder, but I was always like sort of on the defense or like ready to sort of like go like spar with like someone with money from a very early age. Um, and then when I like sort of became an adult or like went to grad school, like I would meet friends who also, who came from money, but they were like, it felt like none of that stuff was happening. Like it felt, and it was sort of my, my first moment, maybe like late twenties where I was like, Oh, like people with money can be nice. Like they're not all like, 
you know, jerks. Well, I have are- this conversation around raising children mm-hmm. in Los Angeles. It's like, I don't want to raise a couple of assholes. You know, like Los Angeles seems like a tough place to raise kind of like well-adjusted, healthy kids compared to like my like folksy Midwestern upbringing in the suburbs or whatever, where yeah. everything's sort of like easy. And there was like a greater equality, you know, just less complicating factors. Los Angeles has a lot going for it, but there's just a lot of complications, especially when you're raising young people. And I say all that, and I have friends who are raised here who are super well-adjusted among the most well-adjusted people I've ever known. Yeah. Likewise, Manhattan. I have uh, one of the most well-adjusted guys I went to college with had like the craziest Manhattan upbringing was like in an urban cult and was adopted. And his mom was like a, you know, in her, she was elderly when she adopted him or, you know, getting there. And like, he had like total freedom in high school. She would just like put money in a, you know, things that were like completely alien to me. And yet, in college, he was more well-adjusted than I was. Mm-hmm. Sweeter, saner, calmer, smarter, just better, you know? Yeah. So I think ultimately it comes down to a little bit of genetics and then hopefully good parenting and value system. Like the value system is what matters. And um, I don't know, maybe just a commitment to, to seeing people. And uh, having a sense of justice, I don't know what it is. Yeah, I mean, my, um, you know, my my brother and sister in law, and and kind of their larger family, um, I would describe them as as wealthy, and uh, but they're very generous, which is something that I just, you know, like I said, as growing up, I didn't experience, you know, uh, people who are wealthy who are generous, and they also, I mean, they. I can't remember now if it's weekly or it's at least monthly. They live in Berkeley and they, um, they make food and buy food and, and take it to the park and, and, and distribute it to people who are homeless, you know, who are, who are hungry. And they do it, um, partly, you know, because they feel a real need to, but also because they want, um, my nephews and my niece to understand, you know, that, that there are people that don't have money, you know, who are, to know sort of, you know, of course they know, but to know firsthand, to be reminded, you know, there are people who don't have a home. There are people who don't have enough money for food. And I really admire that a lot. Yeah. Because it's, I do worry that, you know, like I said, with certain, with with maybe some of my family members, you know, I don't want to offend people with some of the sort of like wealth things that get said about wealth and class in the book. Um, You know, in a way I don't care, but in a way like with my family, you know, I, it's not as if I'm sort of against like anyone with money or, you know, but the whole point, I mean, yeah, you want to take care of yours. I get like as a parent and a spouse, like you want to take care of your family and there's nothing wrong with that. But really the whole point of being wealthy is to be able to help people. Yeah. Like what other end game is there just to accumulate all this stuff? Like if you're fortunate enough to, to have a lot, um, I, I, I guess like where I'm at with it is that like, there's so much luck involved. There's so much chance. I don't, I don't care how hard you worked. Like there, there's some combination of genetics and fate and people being in your corner, support systems, lucky strike, you know, like moments of like incredible good fortune, pivot points that you couldn't possibly have orchestrated yourself where things just broke your way. Um, and yes, like there is some merit involved, but it goes back to that whole question about free will, you mm-hmm. know, and whether or not like we're really in control of all that we do. It's like you think about somebody who, 
you know, winds up um, in prison for like assault and battery, like does something horrible. And then you start to like peel that person's like, like the layers, that person's life back. And it's like, Oh wow. Was abused as a child. Got this like weird set of genetics from these parents who struggled with substance abuse Mm and, um, you know, impulse control and, Oh, grew up in a neighborhood where like, you know, like these kinds of violent behaviors were like reflected back at them all the time. Mm -hmm. Oh, they weren't properly educated. They didn't get access to good schools or teacher didn't give a shit. Oh my, like, and you start to tease it apart and you go, Oh, like all of a sudden it's hard to really look at that person. It's not that you're condoning what they did, but it's hard to look at them and not feel some compassion. Right. Not understand kind of what contributed to that. And how much Mm -hmm. of it, like, I think there's a certain like mind state out there among certain human beings where they'd be like, well, they made their bed, they got to sleep in it. Mm-hmm. And it's like, what I'm saying is, I don't think they made their bed yeah. all by themselves. No, no, definitely not. <laughs> like there's all sorts of different co- contributing factors and it's ultimately like there's a level of mystery to it, whether things go well for you or whether things go poorly for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, I, I don't, it's not that that f- makes me feel disempowered. I think it makes me feel non-local like there's actually something sort of liberating about it. It makes me feel more connected to people and hopefully less judgmental. Yeah. That's really nice. You know, it's like, yeah. Oh, like what, it, what like, and maybe grateful too. Like, Oh, mm-hmm. like boy, like I've got a good lot in life. Um, yeah. You know, there are just some people in this world who are just supremely unlucky. Yeah. And that sucks. It does. It does. Um, I don't know why I just got off on that tangent, <laughs> but I mean, you talk about class and you talk about, you know, all this stuff, I guess it's like in our face living in a big city, you know, you see it sort of starkly every day. You do. Yeah. Um, and something's got to give in this world when there's so few people who have so damn much and so many people who have so damn little, mm-hmm. it's not sustainable. That's my, and that's my Ted talk right there. Yeah. That's a good Ted talk. <laughs> um, so you got this book of essays cooking. Uh, are you doing anything else? Like, do you have like a, I, there was a part of me too, when I was reading where I was like, I feel like Amin is building to maybe working on a bigger canvas. Like may, mm-hmm. are you going to, do you have an aspiration to write maybe a bigger novel? That's like the 100,000 word Amina Kane oh, novel. I, Probably will never write the one that you know. I, I'll probably never write that that long of a novel. But I do feel I don't know what's next for me in fiction. Um, I I feel very uh, worried and affected, sort of daily, by climate concerns, and so I feel like that is maybe going to shape what the next thing I work on is in terms of fiction. And I don't mean in terms of like form or you know because i think like what does that mean like do i have to write about like an apocalypse or like (laughs) that's sounding kind of dark and negative sorry yeah um but and i don't want to necessarily so i to write that kind of novel you know and so i so i don't know what it's going to look like for me but i i just feel like that's going to have to come into the whole process somehow i'm imagining it has to yeah you know it's on my mind too and i think the thing that the, the place where it manifests like most concretely for me is around this idea of sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean that in the context of like, uh, changed behavior that is inconvenient and uncomfortable. Um, like, and I don't, uh, I'm not trying to pat myself on the back, but like the place where I've tried to do this is like, I haven't been driving a car for the last, I don't know, year. That's great. 
Yeah. And I'm like, I, like my car basically died. I had it for a long time. I didn't drive all that much because I work from home a lot. And it died. And then I was like, I guess I got to get a new car. And then I was like, or maybe I don't. Like, maybe I don't. Like, I have a bike. I like to ride a bike. There's trains in LA. And like, we have a car, mm -hmm. like another car. If we want to use the car, I don't, I, let's see how long I can go with this. And so now it's like a game for me. <laughs> and, you know, and I'm like, fuck it. Like, maybe I'll be the guy in LA who just doesn't have a car. And like, I have to admit, there is something sort of funny when I'm in a social context or a certain kind of social context where they're like, you, you rode your bike? <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, to Dodger Stadium, yeah. or you know, and I'm like, yeah, I did. That's great, yeah, <laughs> to be able to, yeah, I, um, you know, the same thing happened to me. Like my car died in May, um, and R.I.P. Yes, and you know, my husband Amar and I have been sharing a car since then, and and we've, you know, like thought like, oh, we're gonna, yeah, like I. Like, yeah, so of course we're going to get another car, but we can't quite afford the car payments or, you know, and then in a way, like we've been able to see that we can do it. Right. I mean, sometimes it's inconvenient and I, you know, I broke out my bike. I've not been riding it that much. I mean, which I never owned a car until, you know, I moved to LA. Like I lived in Chicago for a long time, the Bay Area some and New York a little bit. And so I got very used to taking trains and buses and in Chicago when it was warm, um, I rode my bike like everywhere, you yeah. know, in the summer, spring and fall. And so I was like a biker and then I moved to LA and I did it first. And then that kind of dwindled away. It's and a hard town to bike in. Yeah, it pisses me off. Yeah. This is another, like when I'm kind of obstinate, I'm like, okay, I'll play Frogger. I'm going to take risks with my life. But like, we have to have, like the way I think of it is like, we have to have these change agents. There have to be bikes on the road for people to realize that biking is possible. Right. If nobody's biking, then they're like, we can't then bike. Like, yeah. But it's like, I guess like the larger point and it can man like I still use my air conditioner. Mm -hmm. I'm not a saint. I'm still mm -hmm. fucking things up, but it's like, we have to be willing to make changes in our behavior that are fairly radical. Yeah, we do. If we're going to have any chance of like leaving our kids and their kids mm -hmm. like a decent world. Mm -hmm. That's the message I'm getting from science. Yeah. Like I'm not making this up. And so I get, I feel a sense of panic because I'm like, oh, yeah, we're all saying the right things. But are we doing the right things? I speak for myself. Yeah. So I think that's what this is. It's like an exercise in me trying to like walk the walk. Yeah. And be like, well, so when my kid, like when I'm like, you know, God willing, when I'm like 99 years old and like the coasts are flooded and there's like food rations and my kids are like <laughs> duking it out on the street, they will be like, well, my dad did ride his bike. Like, <laughs> he wasn't like in his SUV, like, you yeah. know, telling me, giving me lectures about responsible citizenship. Yeah. Yeah, we do have to make changes for sure. And, you know, it's and so, yeah, maybe the the car is dying, you know, like that's a that's a blessing in disguise because it shows you that you can do without one or you can do with sharing one car instead of having two, you know, or, you know, you can carpool and it, Get on it the just train. kind of forces you. Yeah. Get on the train if you can. Yeah. Like it's fun to kind of find a route. The other thing, too, is that it is like slow. Um, sometimes it like takes longer. But then when you're on the train, you can like read, mm -hmm. you know, it kind of enforces a certain slowness that I'm so hungry for living in this like chaotic city and just the fast paced, you know, world that we live in. Yeah. I'm hunger. I'm hungry for slowness mm -hmm. a lot of the time. Yeah. Like um, so anyway, uh, I want to ask you before I let you go, 
about uh, your spiritual life mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, as it pertains to your book. Um, but I think the last time you were on, we talked about yoga. You yeah. thank your yoga teachers in the acknowledgments. Mm-hmm. I know you do a lot of yoga. Mm-hmm. I do. I've done yoga for years and years and years. Um, it sort of started as like I had a bad back and it brought me relief. And then you sort of get hooked on it. Like I always say, it's like a bong hit without the paranoia. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I felt something very like, again, the word concentrated gets thrown around. Concentration gets thrown around when people are describing your work. There is this feeling of like meditative concentration on every page on, in every line. And, um, is there, do you feel like there's a correlation between your yoga practice or a meditation practice and how you approach writing work? Is that something that you've consciously tried to cultivate? Am I like barking up the wrong tree? No, not at all. I mean, and I think, um, for me, a lot of it started, I used to, um, I used to say, I I used to practice Buddhism and I, you know, I spent time in a monastery for three months, oh, and wait, I is it Tassahara? Yeah. I okay. Spent now that conversation's coming back. Yeah, we talked about I, that. There was a group in Chicago when I lived there called Ancient Dragons and Gate that I was very involved in. That's and, right. And so I think a lot of you know that kind of stuff. You know, I didn't do it consciously, but I, I think a lot of it sort of came into my you know like my meditation practice began to sort of merge with my writing process a little bit. And they're not um, dissimilar. Yeah. Yeah. And now, you know, I don't, since moving to LA, I don't, there's not a group I sit with. I still do meditate a little bit on my own, but I don't feel like I can call myself a Buddhist at this point, you know? So, but at the same time, I feel like the influence of it still comes into my writing so much. And, um, and then also, you know, going to, to yoga a lot, it, it still feels like I'm in like a part of these meditative thing, you know, like processes and, and, you know, like yoga always felt, especially when I was practicing Buddhism, it felt like a separate, it never felt spiritual for me. And um, it always felt like sort of a separate practice from meditation and, and from Buddhism. But I mean, isn't traditionally um, yoga is supposed to prepare the body for seated meditation? Yeah. Like you loosen yourself up and you, you know, get more breath focused or whatever, mm-hmm. but you sort of like deplete some physical energy and I don't know. Yeah. And then when you sit, it's like, I've never, like, I've done a little bit of that, like in classes where you sit at the end of class for like mm-hmm. a minute or two, but I've never sadly like done a full yoga class and then gone sat for like an hour, which yeah. is probably what I should do. Yeah. It's, it's really nice. I mean, but the interesting thing is that now, I mean, it, it has become, I, I think because of the teachers that I have, you know, and so like, um, the, the teachers I have here in LA, and I don't know that's like true necessarily, like at all studios or with all teachers and not even all teachers at the studio I go to, but I go to a studio named Yogala and I just have found these teachers that feel like kind of like spiritual teachers for me. Um, and like I said, that was never true for me in yoga before, but um, it's just this particular group of, of teachers. And so now like, I, I feel like yoga has sort of, you know, it, it has come closer to me, you know, uh, closer uh, to my writing process too. Can I ask um, you, can I ask you a practical question? Mm-hmm. How often do you practice? Um, about four times a week. Do you practice typically after you've written or before? Um, usually after. Yeah. It's like, the yeah. Be- it's like the best palate cleanser. <laughs> yeah. Like you've been hunched over your keyboard all day and you've been like focused and like doing all that grinding work of writing and then you can go there and sort of wring yourself out. Yeah. 
that's how I've used to, you know, when I practice like multiple days a week, um, I used to, I mean, when I wrote my novel, it was like that. I would work and then go to class. And I did it like almost every day. Yeah. And it it's was, a, that's a good setup right it's there. It's a great setup. Like writing and then yoga. <laughs> yeah. If you can pull it off, it gets hard. You know, it's gotten harder for me. And my back has just been, I can't do it as often as I was doing it just because of the repetitive stress. Like I have to mix in other things, but yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I felt it. I could feel it in there. Maybe it's because I knew that about you. And so then I was like projecting it into the work, but I don't know all those blurbs with the word concentrate in them. I think I'm onto something. Yeah, I think it's there. I think I can't quite escape it. Not that I want to escape it. It's just, it's kind of, it, it came in at a certain point into my writing and it hasn't left or. And can I geek you know. out a little bit? Like, I don't, uh, I know not everybody listening is into yoga, but like, um, I think if you do enough yoga, maybe if you do enough anything, you sort of get specific about what kind of teacher you like. Mm -hmm, definitely. And if you go to a class where the teacher is not to your liking, it can get frustrating. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Like they're over talking. It's, yeah. it's, like, it's like, dude, you know, like for me, and maybe you're different. Um, if the practice isn't centered on the, bre the breathing, if that isn't primary, then it's just like calisthenics. Yeah. And if they're playing like too much pop music or mm -hmm. music that I know the words to, I'm just like, <laughs> like this is supposed to be like a movement meditation. I want to get yeah. away. I want to like get away from the world. And it's like, I don't want to be listening to REO Speedwagon while I'm trying to do a headstand <laughs> <laughs> or whatever the oh fuck, my God. Yeah. You, know, you know? And yeah. so I just, yeah. I guess sometimes I feel frustrated by the fact that like there's so much variation and so much Liberty taken um, that it really subverts the thing. And I'm not like, I don't want to be like uh, a fundamentalist. I think there is room for experimentation and difference, but like mm -hmm. there should be some fundamental principles that everybody agrees to like, Oh, this is yeah. a breathing. This is primarily a breathing practice. Mm -hmm. It's not to see like, if you can like put your like foot behind your head or whatever, it's like, yeah. this is about, um, you know, quieting your, your chattering mind and, getting saner yeah i kind of need it to be that i mean i need it to be all the things that it can be which is this like physical practice but also like mental and it, i don't think yoga for everyone has to be like spiritual but it can be just depending and and for me it it feels like i go deepest with it when all these kind of elements are working and yeah it's not worth it to me almost to go to a teacher who, who i don't like their style or I get stressed out in the class. Yeah. Me if too. I don't like the class or like the teacher. So I just don't, I, I have to go to very specific teachers. I've had this fantasy that I've never acted on of writing an essay called like how to teach a good yoga class by some, cause I've taken thousands of yoga classes. That's not an exaggeration. Like that's, that's great. Yeah. I mean like I've done, I'm like, I'm nowhere near an expert. I could not, you know, I'm not qualified to teach, but like I'm qualified to like, comment on what's it, what it's like to be a devoted student, yeah. somebody who does something a lot. And uh, there are certain common threads, I think, among teachers that are good. But I think what stops me is that like I'm like, well, that's just my opinion. Mm -hmm. like, I think uh, you should write it. <laughs> I really do. I would enjoy it. Yeah. I mean, like, and it would be like more almost like a bulleted list. Like this, these are what, yeah. this is what you should do, you know? And um, I find myself like some of the best teachers have something in common with what I cherish so much in some of my favorite writers, which is that they're precise with language mm -hmm. and economical with language. Mm -hmm. You know, when you're trying to get focused and um, concentrated on your breathing and to come into um, your body and all these different things that it does, and somebody's just like jabbering 
in a way that's not how you know that's not adding anything it's not additive it's just jabbering it becomes a distraction and yet there's something i appreciate so much about somebody who's able to like just with like a turn of phrase elegantly describe to you where your foot should be right in a way that like unlocks your hips and you go oh you know like i know i don't know you get you get sort of nuanced the more classes you take about like um you know what you like and what you don't like and maybe that's a form of judgment maybe that's my judging mind taking over (laughs) you know i would i would like that essay yeah that kind of i think you should write it all right we should do a separate like yoga podcast yeah (laughs) um i've had all these thoughts brewing that i've probably talked about like twice in my life because you know, my wife doesn't, she does some yoga, but like not like me. And, um, you know, if you're an aficionado, it's like a, like there's a certain tribal aspect to, um, shared interest. And even if it's like unspoken or even, um, not all that social, like just to use yoga as an example, we live in these, you know, we live in this big city and I think Los Angeles has been written about in all kinds of different contexts as a city that can be fairly isolating. Mm -hmm. And so you go to yoga and you go regularly and you get to know these teachers. Maybe you get to know some other people in class and you develop actual relationships or friendships. That's awesome. But that is actually the exception for me anyway. Mm -hmm. And even in the absence of that, like just recently I went to a class and I saw a woman I had not seen in like, I don't know how many years. And I'm like, God, I've been practicing in the same room with this woman for like 20 years. Yeah. And we looked at each other and we were like, hey. And it was the Because you had never introduced yourselves before? I don't even think we introduced ourselves. We didn't. We didn't even yeah. say our names. We just looked each other in the eye and we were like, hey. It was like, ah, oh, like we're moving through time together. Right, know? right. Just that acknowledgement. Yeah. And it was just yeah. like really nice. And then um, I feel the same way about like my, like dawn, like I hike at dawn a lot. Mm-hmm. Like when I, you know, get up, I, certain mornings I'll take the dog and I go up early and- I can tell you, like, there's a weird sort of like, uh, is polyglot the word? It's like a mixed group of people um, up at like Runyon Canyon, but it's the same cast of characters, right. give or take, yeah. every morning at that time. <laughs> and I mean, hundreds and hundreds of mornings, you see them, hey, morning, unspoken. But it's like, we're the people who get up and walk up there in the dark and the, you know what I'm saying? Like yeah. what's going on with it's, us? Who yeah. are we? You know, I know. we yeah. share something deep in common. And then at Griffith park at dawn, it is predominantly older to elderly Asian people. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them are couples. Mm-hmm. Some of whom are like adorably like holding hands while they walk in the morning. <laughs> Some of them I'm like, are you doing walking meditation? Like, I think that's yeah. happening, but whatever it is, like I'm up there with them. Yeah. Like all the time. And, uh, you know, you just sort of nod, you see each other. Sometimes like it's in like the half light. And I was just thinking, uh, you know, a day or two ago about this weird feeling of kinship and affection that I have for people. I have no idea who they are. I've never spoken with them. We probably never will. But like we share something and i don't know yeah. exactly how to language it <laughs> yeah no it's so interesting um they you know that happens to me a lot students that you know i'm in class with you know we never really talk to each other but i guess we see each other but um i did a reading um with lucy ives a couple of years ago at skylight when her book came out and um a woman showed up who she's friends with who i've been in all these yoga classes with so we were like hi like, yeah. we've never actually introduced each other but right. it was it was really nice i mean she was really sweet and 
Yeah, there, I mean, you don't always have to introduce yourself. You still share something, you know. And I think like there's like a like more like overwhelmingly more often than not, I am guessing if you have something like that in common with somebody, like you share that similar obsession or that same discipline, um, like if it does turn out that you start to talk, the odds are good that you're going to be simpatico. Mm-hmm. Like, and they're not going to shock you. Yeah. There's going to be some, like, I don't know. I feel like there's some deep connectivity there. Um, I love those people somehow. I don't yeah. know. I feel, that makes sense to me. Yeah. Um, anyway, I could, that's like a strange line of conversation that like, I've sort of, I guess I've been dying to have, but I haven't had it with anyone but myself. <laughs> uh, it's so fun to see you again. Yeah, you too. Uh, Thank I loved you your, so much. I loved your book. Congratulations. I'm going to be interested in the essay collection. Um, and you know, whatever, uh, happens to you fictionally, you're not in control of this. It's going to happen. To yes. You. <laughs> um, but I thank you and I wish you luck. Thank you so much. It was so nice to talk to you. All right, guys. There you go. That is Amina Kane. Her novel is called Indelicacy. It is available from Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux in a uh, beautiful edition. Beautiful cover. Beautiful book. Indelicacy, available from... Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux, the new novel by Amina Kane. Go get your copy. If you want to find Amina online, her website is uh, aminakane.com. She is on Twitter. Her handle there is at Amina Memory. And on uh, Instagram, she is uh, at Amina underscore memory. Thanks to uh, Tiger in My Tank for the interstitial music there at the top of the interview. If you would like to write to me, if you have something to say, if you heard the podcast and you want to report back, my email address is letters at otherppl.com. You can also tell me a story. I mean, whatever you want to say, say it. If you want to support the show, the uh, Patreon is Patreon. Is that what you call it? The Patreon? The Patreon for the show is uh, patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Tip your server if uh, you are so inclined. So it's been a, you know, everything's so tense, I feel like, which is probably appropriate, but I think cool heads need to prevail. We got to stay cool, focused, smart, steely, strategic, right? I'm talking to myself as much as I'm talking to you. It's not like I'm perfect at this. These are some weird times, man. Stakes are indeed very high. Believe it. Uh oh. Next week on the program, my conversation with Nicolette Polak. Okay. 